Listener Production. I'm madly passionate about garden design. I love to see beautiful outdoor spaces that we can all appreciate. But if designing a spectacular garden might seem a little bit daunting, well, the good news is it doesn't have to be. The friend of mine that's just built this garden, he's so not artistic and creative, but he's created a beautiful landscape by looking at nature. Hi, I'm Charlie Albone, and in partnership with Still on this episode of That's How We Grow, I'll be catching up with friend Philip Johnson. Every single person that comes to our place, they go away with a bunch of flowers. A lover of nature who prides himself on creating functional and sustainable landscapes that will last for generations to come. Okay, Phil, welcome to That's How We Grow. I've had the privilege to know you for over 10 years, and it's great to have you on the show. But there's one thing I've never actually asked you, and that's how on earth you got into landscaping. My grandparents got me into gardening. So when I was four, when I can remember, I used to hang out with them in their backyard in a Melbourne and dig holes, pick vegetables. Uh, they had this great fernery too, which I just loved. Uh, and that's where I really um, found that kind of connection to kind of gardening. And then it evolved from there through my professional career. Mm-hmm. I took a year off after year 12 and um, taught outdoor education, environmental education, where I had students come away on a school camps for 10 days at a time. And how they evolved being connected to nature was amazing to see them evolve as young people. So then I studied horticulture, landscape, the University of Melbourne. Uh, there I struggled big time because uh, I am dyslexic. And uh, I found studying extremely difficult and my dad helped me a lot. My dad was an artist, so that being an artist brought a creative angle to a science degree. So then when I started the landscape architecture and landscape design side, wow, I found everything. I found like that's that's it. I found my passion really. Um, Charlie, it was just awesome to right. be really good at something because I struggled through the science degree. It was really challenging to kind of comprehend. And then did you go and work for somebody else or did you start working for yourself? I worked with another friend of ours. Um, we did a lot of paving early on. As you do when you start out. <laughs> I, I'm very good at yeah. brick paving. <laughs> and he was really pedantic too, which was great. So we worked really well. We wanted to strive for perfection and good attention to detail. But no other major landscape companies at all actually really went on my own, right. my own vision, in my own um, kind of direction. So you started building these amazing natural landscapes in an, in an urban area. Did they start off small? Did, they, did you just manage to crack one of those big jobs where someone said, yeah, go for it? Or, or how did that all come about? It started as stepping stones, small, small, small. Then one person saw this beautiful water feature built in urban Melbourne, uh, this billabong, and he said, oh, I've got the client that was just about to put a plastic artificial pond in the Yarra Valley. And I said, I've got to give him your details. And there, that was an acreage project. And then the next day I popped in to see the, the couple and that was the first large, probably about an acre and a half landscape that I then tackled in multiple little stages and developed a lot of confidence there too. And then you kind of got addicted to show gardens as well. We're very similar in that sense. You've built a few at the Melbourne Flower Show, is that right? Yeah. So first one, 2009, where it was the largest build ever, and I still think it is at Mifkus. Yeah. Fell in love with that kind of adrenaline that comes with a, a show garden and, and striving for perfection and trying to share a message too. That's something with all the show gardens I've ever put in because you've got to put a lot of energy, resources and 
and passion and time and cost, um, but it's really important to try to relay a, a really solid environmental message in a lot of the designs that we are doing. Back then, that one was a, a garden that was 90% plant material and only 10% hard landscape, and what hard landscape were, was permeable um, and that we could collect and use that water as well. So really trying to promote plants and greening an urban environment. It's tricky with show gardens, isn't it? Because they are not the most sustainable thing in the world. You know, there's a lot of effort that goes into them. There's a lot of transport that goes into them. They last for a short period. You have to then take them apart. I mean, you can reuse some stuff, but a lot of stuff does get thrown out. How does that go against your natural ethos of being a sustainable landscape designer? Back to that 2009 one, once again, those plants were on consignment, so we're using those plant material. The decking was reused that we had. Mm-hmm. We had solar power in the site, so they, that was reused. We bought water in from one of our projects that we then irrigated over the lawn. Yep. See, our gardens weren't built with all artificial – we had pellets underneath it, so filling up the ground. So we weren't building all these artificial deckings that you see at Mifkus. There's everyone the first couple of days are using nail guns and drop saws, building all these platforms, all these wonderful levels where we just mm. brought in – all these pellets um, that we built up and created the contours and then we planted everything in these interesting forms and shapes. When I jumped to Chelsea, what we did over there, right from day one, I looked at the life cycle of that project. We worked with RMIT looking at the life cycle of all different products, materials, for example, the sculpture that we had there, which was this amazing sculpture designed for the Queen, the Waratah sculpture, where we used reclaimed materials. We designed the aluminium structure to go all inside each other out of reclaimed aluminium that broke apart and went inside each other. So we reduced, reduced space yes. in a container. We looked at the way of transport. Shipping is the best form of transport. But yes, there is still a lot of energy that goes into something like this. Part of that other balance of sustainability, that social side of things, was to really promote our messaging of that garden we did at Chelsea was to actually rebuild it as a public garden. That was my ultimate goal, Charlie, to bring that back home to Australia, use that all that knowledge, IP, passion, energy that went into it to rebuild it as a, a public garden. Yeah, absolutely. So Chelsea Flower Show, that's where I first met you. I'd heard what you were trying to do, and you and I were both trying to get the Foxtel Network to, to make a documentary about it. And I remember driving home on a, on a Friday night and getting a call from the network and them going, oh, you need to pack your bags. The build starts on, on Monday and you need to be there. And then I turn up in London and, and, and have a look at what you were trying to build. You were amazing and got uh, the only Australian to get a best in show at the Chelsea Flower Show, which is an absolute triumph in itself. But tell our listeners about the garden, what it involved, what it looked like. Uh, Picture a beautiful waterhole like in the Kimberley or in the Grampians or Blue Mountains, a little snippet of that. I wanted to kind of replicate this beautiful naturalistic gorge. I look at nature for inspiration by mimicry, looking at natural features and how we can recreate things like that. So to recreate a gorge on the other side of the world, on the edge of the Thames at the Chelsea Flower Show, we had to then go and find material. We had to find where rock was from. So we had to not bring rock out of the bush or farms. We had to source rock from uh, quarries or from depots, that um, from landslips that rock had been put aside. And we did a mock build uh, challenge between Scotland and Edinburgh where we moved 400 tonne of rock, jigsawed together to build the mock build of the gorge. 
surveyed every single rock, uh, organised that ready to bring down into London four months later. So that was the main complex component. And then back in Australia, we're doing prefabbing of everything, as you know, like the success of Chelsea is you want to prefab as much as you can. And then we bought a 20 and 40 foot container of all our prefab components of the garden there as well. It was an Australian garden, so we weren't working with plants that have come from Australia for that project. My original plant palette, I had like 90 different species, and then we started searching what plants we could find, and I could only find five different species in propagation. So I couldn't do like what I've now just recreated back here in Australia, but I had to kind of adapt and then find other plants which were Australian but not specifically the plants that I wanted to use. It was so hard. And then you have compromises, you know, the plants might be the quality you want always, but you've got to have that substitute because that's the only substitute you actually do have. And where did you find the plants from? So we found plants from Spain, uh, Sicily, uh, around Barcelona, France, uh, Holland plants came over and then around London. Sounds like a terrible trip trying to find all of those plants. <laughs> How awful. Uh, as a plantsman, because I'm that's my background, horticulture. Yeah. I just love plants, just love uh, the beauty of plants. But you just never know what you do find in the back of the nursery yeah. down at Suffolk or somewhere where there was all these amazing tree ferns, which yeah. we found that still had the tags from Australia. They had permission to harvest it from a logging coop. But... If you've ever seen a tree fern in London at the Chelsea Flower Show, they kind of prune it, don't they, Charlie? And like maybe... Well, they're all like straight vertical things and that's how they have them, isn't it? But that's not how they grow. (laughs) Yeah, and they vacuum them, they polish them, I'm sure, and they cut all the dead branches off perfectly millimetre. And I said, "Let's, let's kind of deconstruct this. Let's get them on the sides and angles so it's looking like it's coming out of a rock face, leave all the dead old fronds from the last... 24 months, and he said, you don't do that with a tree fern at Chelsea. <laughs> like, they're like the hero plants. They're like the, the showstoppers. But, uh, yeah, we were trying to mimic a naturalistic garden, so we had to make it look more naturalistic. Yep. And even a funny story there, when we planted them, uh, we had to plant them quickly. You'll probably remember we had to make sure the ferns, because those fern fronds are constantly opening out, so we had to make sure that they're opening out towards the sunlight properly. If you give it a couple of days, they'll start going in a different way. Phototropism, great word, growing in a weird different angle. So you've got to make sure we had to execute that perfect. Yeah, and and your garden had a studio in there, didn't it? So tell our listeners about the studio because it had a pretty fancy trick. Yeah, this incredible... Incredible architect, uh, Dylan Brady from Melbourne, Australia. Uh, My brief was to him to, how can we design something that will guarantee the queen to come? So we researched the queen's eye height, which is pretty hard because that wasn't on um, Google and she thought it was hilarious. I actually Googled her eye height. So I had to take a little bit of artistic license back to my dad who taught me drawing and painting at, at, a, at a young age. Uh, so if you, anyone's done life drawing or a portrait drawing, uh, someone's head, there's actually seven eyes that go into someone's head. So we then subtracted a couple of eyes down to determine five foot three, the queen eye height. So at five foot three in the centre of this incredible sculpture, all these petals would completely disappear and give a 360 degree view 
uninterrupted view at the Queen's eye height of the whole landscape. So from the outside, you look at uh, what looks like a Waratah. Yeah, a Waratah flower sculpture. And you head into this box through a spiral staircase. Remember going in and you squat down to five foot three and all those petals disappear and you can you look like you're floating above the garden. Yeah, and I think I was floating the day that Prince Harry went up there. That was like a an incredible, because he spent 45 minutes in our garden because we were competing against him that year that was as well, yes. one of his challenges. And uh, he said, I'd love to have a closer look. And so we told him, if you're going to go in there, we're now doing the final kind of detail. You're going to have to take your boots off. So he had royal purple explorer socks on. (laughs) Uh, And we had this great banter in there. He was squatting down to the Queen's eye height. Yeah, it was um, quite an incredible moment. Yeah, it was. I remember when he turned up, I remember seeing all these guys in suits and I was like, "Mm, I think they've all got guns. And all of a sudden, there's a guy in a baseball cap squatting down in your Waratah studio. It was fantastic. It's fantastic. And that garden, I know it was a real key thing for you to to not throw that thing away and um, yep. you know get rid of it and and the thing about show gardens right is you you build these things they're there for five days they disappear and then they're never again and there's something I, I like about that there's something about knowing it's never going to be experienced again but it's also a little bit depressing so you've taken this concept this garden and you've rebuilt it in Australia haven't you 27 times the size <laughs> well of course of course you've done it 27 times the size right? we had to scale it up go yeah. big or go home and I've been lucky enough to see it actually I, I came to see you on Better Homes and Gardens and we we took a walk around it and it is absolutely spectacular it's like being transported back 10 years for me it, it, it's a really great thing yeah, it was quite an amazing moment to be there with you and Graham Ross uh, in that garden 10 years later because you were both there when we won Best yep. in Show uh, yes, yeah, so that was my goal, Charlie, was to bring that project home. And it was uh, I have to say it was pretty disheartening. Like I, it took five years to probably get some leverage. And as you know, over in London, usually that best-in-show garden is recreated either in a, a hospital grounds or in a, in a public garden somewhere mm. three, six months afterwards. And we had all these opportunities, um, but it, it, it all fell in a heap, which was really disappointing to create such full-on history, horticultural history, I wanted this project to come back. And then hence, we've just recreated that, as you've seen just recently. And where can people come and see it? So it's about an hour out of Melbourne in the Dandenong Ranges, where the original inspiration came from, from the garden. So it's completed this full life cycle, coming back home to my home. And it's at the Dandenong Ranges Botanic Gardens. And the garden's called the Chelsea Australian Garden at Alinda. Yeah, it's a, it's a real achievement. It is really fantastic. Now, you've got a book, Connected, The Sustainable Landscapes of Philip Johnson, and that's all about connecting to ecosystems and it shows off some of your amazing work. If someone wants to start with the, your kind of philosophy in their own garden, how do they, how do they go about that? Uh, we're in the process of developing a friends group in the new garden, the Chelsea Creation. So that's a great way of working very closely mm-hmm. with our company. That's one option, but Really, it's looking at universities and TAFEs. We had a group of TAFE students come through um, our garden last week, which I gave them a tour and, and great inspiration about my philosophy. So starting, finding research in your local area of what TAFE courses or university courses, even certain garden clubs or sustainable garden societies and uh, listening to things like your show, you can get that inspiration. And it might sound a bit strange, but I've taught people that have had no sense in gardening, like no sense at all, 
how to even start to build a garden. And they've now built the most incredible billabong around the corner from my house. So I just gave a little bit of direction about how to excavate, how to harness water, because every project of ours, Charlie, in that book is harnessing and capturing water off the roof. Mm. You live in the country, you realise how precious rainwater is. You want to collect it so you've got water in your rainwater tanks, but you don't need to have a rainwater tank. You might harness that water off the roof down a downpipe or water spout if you're in the UK mm-hmm. and go into um, a pond or a billabong, I, I call it. And a friend of mine, he's built that with no experience at all. And I've shown him a couple of photos of ours. I've given him direction of a couple of places to go and look in nature. So that's the key is study nature in a different way. Look at the way that creek, the way the water hits the edge of that creek, how rocks have randomly and naturally been placed, not in a ring of a row of rocks around the edge. Mm-hmm. Study this incredible country. What are the benefits of capturing all this water? So let's say we're capturing, first of all, in a rainwater tank. We're going through a different cycle in Australia now. In the Southern Hemisphere, we're going into another dry phase. So capturing every drop of water is critical for running your house and also potentially sustaining your landscape. So what I love doing in, say, an urban environment, we still put rainwater tanks in. We're capturing every drop of water off that roof of the house. We're slowing down stormwater when it falls on the roof so it doesn't exit like at a rapid pace uh, into existing infrastructure. So it fills up the rainwater tank. Uh, The rainwater tank overflows. It might then go down a dry creek or to a creek into the pond or the billabong. The billabong, like in nature, fluctuates seasonally based on rainfall. It might drop right out. We've built like 3,500 of these around Australia. Not one has ever dried out. We've always got a storm six weeks later or something that's replenished the system. You could also put other infrastructure in to capture energy. So like our garden up at the Chelsea Recreation, we have no mains power. We're we're running all off renewables. Once again, you want to see where you're getting your materials from. So make sure you're looking, your materials are coming, supporting local industries. Mm -hmm. If you're getting rock, you know where the rock's coming from, from quarries, not from uh, like the bush or illegally sourced or cladded stone. It's not coming from India. You do your your research on all the different components. And I've encouraged people to plant a substantial amount of plant material. Plants are everything. So we really need to reduce the hard landscape in our urban environment. We know what that will do with the benefit of greening our urban environment with cooling, capturing heavy metals to creating habitat. It seems like a lot to do. You know, you've got to catch your water, you've, you've got to work out where your rocks come from, you've got to go for solar panels. That could seem daunting for some gardeners. What would you say the main two things to do to start with are? Because I know, I know what happens is once you get started, you then see the benefits and you, and you keep rolling with it. But where's the best place to start with something like this? Capture one downpipe. One downpipe, you walk outside tonight, have a look at where your stormwater is going, track where your stormwater is going. That one downpipe can create the most incredible habitat and ecosystem. Okay. And have a look on our website, have a look, any of those little billabongs that we built and a lot of our project are small little spaces in urban environments. I've seen a few of your gardens. I've seen one in Strathbogie and I went to, on the same trip, went to the, the one at Alinda. Now they're very different climates. How do you build gardens in different climates and make sure they succeed? With those two different climates, so one is high rainfall, the other one is extremely dry. Uh, and 
One is really well-drained uh, granite sand. The other one is red mountain soil, really well-drained. It's to do your research. It's to plant plants that are appropriate for that local climate that will succeed and strive in the soils that you've got without major modification. Sometimes you need to modify your soils because often we come, as you know, uh, you come to places where an architect and the builders completely manipulated the landscape and we now need to kind of modify this clay compacted ground to grow something with full shade <laughs> so we i think a, a great uh, area of anyone that is planning to do a new house build because the one in the strathbogies was a new house build is to get involved day one even before an architect's appointed so you can have discussions about creating these great environments for plants to grow or successful features in the landscape and also to save your soil so your soil is not stripped and removed from a site because that's gold your local soil yeah saving your soil is a key one isn't it and also most councils will have an endemic plant list won't they that you can refer to we use that as a benchmark as well we go to your local indigenous nurseries uh, where possible and even throw back to the chelsea recreation we have close to 100 threatened and endangered plants in that garden now, which is just incredible. Like we had a a, a collection from the New South Wales Botanic Gardens of uh, over 33 Woolamai pines that are three metres tall, Charlie, uh, that have now been part of this collection to grow it on and to conserve that collection. That's amazing. As well as building billabongs, you also build natural swimming pools. They they look very similar. How, how How are they different though? Every state has different requirements for restrictions when it comes to fencing. Okay, so you got to wherever you're thinking of building a water feature or a natural pool or a swimming pool or a spa, you have to do your research to your local council or your, your local state. Let's say Victoria, where we are, any body of water that you swim in, wade in, splash in, have a spa, natural pool, uh, you need to fence. Mm-hmm. A naturalistic pond, wetland, dam lake, uh, rivers, you don't need to fence. So as soon as you change the use of, say, a billabong, which is a really naturalistic water feature, into something that you want to swim in, Charlie, it changes the use. So then you've got to go through engineering, you've got to get permits, you've got to build it to code to meet um, pool regulations, but with a natural filtration system as well. So some of the, my favourite ones I've built is like I had a client say, well, I want something that looks like the Kimberleys. And so we mimicked that naturalistic environment but made it functional to be able to get in easily. We've made it so you can heat it, uh, so you can heat a natural pool. We've got the filtration side over there, so you're looking out from the master bedroom, looking out to this beautiful wetland planting area that's absorbing the nutrient out of the water and cleaning that water of that natural pool. But then flip it again, we've done other urban projects where it's minimal. It's like a lap pool where that's a swimming zone and then off to the right is the the filtration zone. So it doesn't need to look naturalistic. It's more the way the water is being cleaned in a biological way, kind of what occurs in our natural waterways that cleans the water before it goes into a reservoir that we then drink. Uh, So it's looking back to, I said, start of this, um, look at nature for inspiration, biomimicry, look at natural systems and some incredible information out there that you can... um, create and it supports life charlie it's not like your frogs get in there and they die yeah uh, they it supports <laughs> life it actually 
you you can swim with organisms. I know it sounds a bit freaky for some people. Don't go there if that's something yeah. you don't want to do. But you can open your eyes underwater. My uh, my youngest boy gets serious reactions to chlorine. Like he gets serious eczema, and now he can just open his eyes underwater and actually see what's. And then it's it's fine. It's it feels beautiful in your skin. What, what's the sort of maintenance on something like that? Because I'm sure people would see that and go, oh, gosh, there's too much maintenance involved. So the maintenance requirements for a natural pool, it's it depends on where you live. Okay, I've got a natural pool linked to a great B&B, which I highly recommend everyone check out, Billabong Falls. Uh, I believe you might have been there. You've stayed there. I've been there, yeah. Uh, my wife runs that and uh, it's an amazing place. That's where we originally lived. That was probably my original inspiration for what we built at Chelsea. And there I've built a natural pool in the middle of this whopping great forest of mountain ash. So mm. I've had to come to terms. I'm going to have not just one leaf in the pool, <laughs> in the natural pool. I'm going to have five million leaves in that natural pool yeah. and I have to work with nature, not against it. And that's hard sometimes when you've got to say, some people will go, oh, I was expecting a completely nat- clean vacuum pool. I can, but I'll be vacuuming it three times a day because I've got millions of leaves falling into this catchment. So I've now had to change that way. Yeah. So it's about what vegetation's around you. Um, that will determine the amount of the leaf load. That will then determine the amount of the nutrient load that would go into something like this. That's probably the main drive. Uh, then uh, we've got, say, the Infinity Edge natural pool, which is like a lap pool. We can have run pool robots in there. So you can use tech, but it's another layer of cost that builds up the cost of something like that. Is there things like you, you've got to not have sunscreen on and stuff like that because that will affect pH and, and all the organisms that are in the water? Not specifically, no. That can be skimmed off uh, at, the, at the top because you always get that film on the top. So, yeah, that, that has not never been a problem. The partners that we work with uh, are involved in public natural pools. That's probably my biggest drive now, Charlie. I would love to see uh, is uh, I once did create a, a wonderful natural pool for Port Douglas because yeah. up in Port Douglas you can't swim in the water at certain times because there's sharks yep. and, and stingers. Uh, and we created this wonderful public natural pool inspired by uh, the Daintree. So this where you could still swim laps. Yep. You had beaches going into it, but there's amazing, like what I've done with the rebuild of Chelsea, but scale that up by another <laughs> 25. Um, yeah, so you, you can do um, some incredible things uh, in there. I really think we need to change the way we, we are, especially in our pool industry, because we are using chemicals. Swimming in dead water is not, not right. 2023, 2024, uh, we shouldn't be swimming with chlorine. It's not good for the environment. It's not good for our bodies. So we need to do something that will support life and support our life as well. So, Phil, you've mentioned maintenance on the water installations you put in. How do you handle maintenance on the rest of the garden? Because the garden's supposed to look good when it goes in, but then improve over time. From probably day one, when I'm in the initial consultation or coming up with that concept for our clients, and you have this every day, I'm sure, I want a low-maintenance garden. Yeah. I want a low-maintenance garden. Well, I have to educate people that all gardens require a degree of maintenance. Mm-hmm. Not the right business decision, what I'm about to say here. What we tend to love to do is to actually, we run a maintenance department. 
Okay, great guy, Richie runs it. But we'd like to educate our clients about their garden to learn how to look after it. Yes, we don't maintain it then as much, but we want them to develop that ownership in their garden and to fall in love with this new creation, this asset, this change of life for their family, their children. And a lot of our clients really love to look after their garden, but once again, we can then jump in and do everything for them. I kind of get really fed up on a separate note of low-maintenance gardens too, Charlie, because a low-maintenance garden, let's look at our best industry in the world, highly recommended sea change to anyone that's not happy at work because I love my job, is horticulture, working with plants. And if we keep pushing a low-maintenance landscape, we are completely destroying our horticultural industry, which is the best industry in the world. So there's a bit of a catch-22 there. I think it comes back to as well, as you say, look at the landscape and try and replicate it. And when you look at a landscape, you get to know the landscape. And then when something changes, you know when something's not right. So you can start looking at why that's not right and you can see how things grow and if you need to prune stuff. Yeah. And and I think just being involved with your garden will help help the maintenance of it. And it's so pleasurable too. Get your kids involved too, if you can. Every single person that comes to our place, they go away with a bunch of flowers. So we're always going on a little journey to pick a bunch of flowers, amazing native um, plants um, for them to take home and put in their little bottles in the bathroom in the house and yeah, take that little link of the garden home too. So, Phil, you've given a lot of good advice. What's some bad advice that you've been given? Oh, mate, you're going to love this one, Charlie. I hate plastic grass, artificial turf. <laughs> yeah. How hot it gets, all those things. And how do you – I wrote an article years ago, Charlie. How do you weed fake turf? Because <laughs> I see it everywhere. Yeah. Fake turf has got weeds all through it. Let's use some more chemicals on, yeah. on an artificial environment. I call it um, future landfill. I'm not a huge fan of it. It's, it's terrible stuff. Yeah. You're a pioneer in sustainable landscaping. What legacy do you want to leave behind? I want people to make a change. We need to make a change. We've got serious uh, environmental issues in this world. Look at what's happening around us. Look at what's happening to this planet. To do the best environmental practice in an urban environment, Charlie, that's what I kind of strive for people to think of. Uh, for future generations, yes, for our families and ch- families' children, but for this planet because we won't have a planet if we don't look after it. Phil, I love your outlook on life. I love the gardens that you build. I want to say thank you for the time you spent with us on the show. Do you mind hanging around and we'll do a few community questions? Yep, love to. Okay, Phil. First one comes from Lachlan. He says, Hi, Charlie. I'm in year 11 at school and would like to work in garden design and landscaping. What advice do you have as I seek to start my career? Now, this is nice to see because there's a skills shortage in so many industries, but, but landscaping is one. I would say get out there on your school holidays and go and work for someone. You don't have to do work experience, you can get paid for it, but just get involved. That's the best way to start, I think. Yeah, I think that's absolutely perfect, Charlie. Work experience, uh, if you're still at school, you can come do a work experience with a, a landscape company and then apprenticeship. Don't be afraid of doing an apprenticeship and a mature age apprenticeship too. We've got a range of mature age um, apprentices in our company and uh, yeah, it's it's a you're never too late to change. One thing I think as well, when people start out in the landscape industry, they, they basically start as labourers. But when you're labouring, 
think about why you're doing the job and what's coming, what's come before and what's coming after it because that will help you put the whole project together and that gives you the sense of achievement. Yeah, no. You're not just moving bricks for the sake of it. You're moving bricks to build a wall and why are you building the wall? What goes behind the wall? What goes in front of the wall? You know, all those sorts of things. Yeah, I love that. Um, another point if he was wanting to be a, a designer too, and I think you'll agree with this one, uh, is to get that practical experience. So it's, it is to work in the trade to understand how, like you said, you, a project gets built from A to B to the completion mm. and learning about that. So when you're starting to come up with innovative ideas, you've already looked at the access, you've already looked at the soils, you've already looked at how you can logistically build this creation that you're about to design. Yeah, that's it. So many, so many young designers design stuff that could never get built. Moving on to the next question from Steph. She says, it's a great podcast. Thank you very much, Steph. The check's in the mail. I've loved listening to each episode, but have zero creativity when it comes to design. Do you have any resources that you use for inspiration for landscaping? What do you use, Phil? <laughs> go bush. <laughs> go, yeah. go, go on a journey with your family or friends. Go away for the weekend. And then put maybe a bit of PJ Phil Johnson goggles on, sit by that waterhole and look at it. Yep. Study nature. You don't need to be creative. Back to the friend of mine that's just built this garden. He's a financial planner. So, so not artistic and creative, but he's created a beautiful naturalistic landscape by looking at nature. Amazing. Yeah, I think travel's the way to go because you just see how oh, people it's do great. So. It's amazing, yeah. So a question from Brett, what's the biggest mistake you see when it comes to amateur landscapers? I think when it comes to design, it's scale and proportion. People always try and fit too much in and never have a cohesive design. They always think, I want a bit of this, I want a bit of that. But when it comes to a sustainable uh, landscape, you know, uh, what do you see as a problem that amateur landscapers do? You've got to do your research. You've got to do research about what plant's going to grow where. You need to understand your soils. You need to make sure you've got the right preparation underground of your soils and uh, plant the right plant in the right location. You hear it all the time, but you don't want a whopping great tree right next to their house. So you need to know how large that plant will get. And that happens with time. You learn that and you can research that on the label. Other things I, I, I really get kind of a bit upset about at times is you just being cautious how we get caught up with trends. And I'm not saying this sustainable landscaping is a trend. It should be actually an, a fundamental design principle that we know we apply when we're designing something. So I often get really upset when I'm driving around housing estates and see, oh, how, what does a yucca look like when they're older, uh, Charlie? Really yuck when they're a straight line going to the front door. Because yep. people haven't, they've looked at a magazine and said, gee, that looks really nice. But 10 years later, yeah, <laughs> it's a... It's a nightmare. Yeah, you need to prepare for the future, don't you? I think uh, trends are a terrible thing because by the time a garden looks good, the trend's gone. Yep, I agree. Okay, here's a, a question that I know you'll love, Phil. It says, what natives can I plant for a super lush garden bed that attracts bees, butterflies, and birds? Anything that flowers is going to attract those things. So <laughs> Anything's going to attract your pollinators. Some really simple things. So uh, your larger birds... I'm not talking the prey birds. I'm talking large birds like your wattle birds, for example, mm. want a, a large flower, so like a banksia mm -hmm. or a, a long grevillea. Uh, and then you go down to the smaller flowers like your wax flowers, 
which is like your Geraldton wax flowers, which are beautiful plants, especially at the moment. I've gone more through my garden where your bees, and then you have a different flower that has like a bell, like a courier, for example, that's more for butterflies. So they pollinate in a certain way. So you, you select the right plants that will then bring your pollinators in, which is your bees, butterflies and birds, uh, all of that into um, your landscape. So an array of different flower shapes, really. Shapes, yeah, that grows in your local environment. And once again, I love indigenous plants, local plants to the local area. We use a lot of that in our normal designs every day, but we also do add other plants from around our country because certain clients want amazing flowering plants. Um, and so we've... Um, We've brought a range of interesting plants into our landscapes as well. Okay, finally, Phil, how can our listeners see your great work or get in contact with you if they if they want to connect with you to build a landscape? Yeah, please check out uh, Philip Johnson Landscapes uh, on Instagram, Philip Johnson Landscapes, search that. But please come up and check out our garden, spend some time, bring your family to Victoria. Uh, it's an hour out of Melbourne. It's called the Chelsea Australian Garden out of Linda. Uh, we're in the process of developing a friends group there because I'm actually involved in maintaining that garden for a 10-year period there. So if anyone's wanting to help, um, please uh, email through and we can put you in contact with our team. And tell us a bit about your book, finally. You know, for those that might live in an apartment with no balcony and want to dream about having a landscape uh, like yours, what, what's your book called and where, where can they get it? It's called Connected, um, The Sustainable Landscapes of Philip Johnson. Search for it online. But uh, you can do simple things on a veranda. You can plant, like one of my favourite plants is a Queensland bottle tree. That can be in a pot on a veranda, north-facing. You can prune it to become quite interesting and bonsai You can have a dish of water for insects to come and retrieve. You can have, I'm even growing a range of like gorillas and things on a veranda here. Um, have your worm farm so you can compost. So there's so much you can still do right on the veranda as well. Well, I love it. I absolutely love your passion and I love the way you love sharing your knowledge. So again, thank you for your time. It's a pleasure, Charlie. Love chatting today. On the next episode of That's How We Grow. It's something that's really addictive. Once you get started, you don't really want to stop. She's the queen of compost and she's on a mission to help others set up their household waste management. Everything that is alive will break down and it will break down safely if you know the right method for it. I welcome Kate Flood. I'm Charlie Albone. See you next time. Listener.